0: Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Co-host Dr. Reed Hayes of the Loss Prevention Research Council and Tom Mean of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. In this episode, Dr. Lucia Summers, Assistant Professor at Texas State University, discusses situational crime prevention, how offenders respond to inside spaces, and much more. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch cameras, onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch and zones one through four of LPRC's zones of influence by visiting Bosch online at Bosch Welcome everybody to the
1: latest edition of crime science podcast, um, from Gainesville, Florida. And, um, Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Tom Meehan, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Control Tech, um, as well as uh, Professor Dr. Lucia Summers from Texas State University. Um, and so I thought, Lucia, Dr. Summers, if I could, I'd go over to you. But I wanted to, um, to kind of frame things up and for our listeners and that uh, we all know that everything Uh, happens at a place. It may be a virtual place or space, but it's going to happen there. And uh, as environmental criminologists working with the practitioners, the retailers, uh, the restaurateurs, and law enforcement officers, um, we want to take a little bit deeper dive into crime and place uh, in the interaction with people and their behavior um, and how that comes together. Always with eye toward how do we leverage what we're learning uh, together and individually out there to make people in places safer. Um, it's about vulnerable people in places and helping to maintain their safety uh, as well as secure the assets. So, uh, Lucy, if I could, um, uh, we're going to kind of freewheel here, but I thought I would ask you, you know, basically how and why do offenders choose certain assets in certain places based on your research and, and others?
2: Hi. Well, first of all, thank you um, for having me. Um, um, I, I really um, appreciate all the work you do, uh, LPRC. It's is, is really unusual to see practitioners and, and academics working together. So uh, this is this is really nice to see. And uh, as you're saying, um, I am an environmental criminologist. And just to um, clarify, it's a confusing term, because it's, you know, you, you're you talking about the environment as the kind of the immediate physical environment. Lots of people get confused, think it's got something to do like crimes against the environment or something like that. But it comes from environmental psychology. And like you're saying, that interaction between individuals and what's around them um, is not just about the the, the person themselves and the reality is that, as for example, in in your case, as retailers, you have control over your environment, but you might not have control over uh, individual people, and and you know. So, so that's the type of research that specializes, in, and, and and more specifically, how offenders make situational decisions. So, in a given situation, in a given context, is it worth for them to commit a crime? Um, the offended decision making also, you know, comes in in relation to how you're going to choose those assets and and those places, like you say, because more often it's not am I going to uh, commit a crime in this particular situation, and then if not the next one, if not the next one. You you know, as a as an individual who's got knowledge of different places and and and, and different assets, it's going to come to a choice, like which ones you're going to target and. What happens is like at the most basic level, it, it has to be something that they are familiar with, because if they have no familiarity with the place or with the product, then, you know, those opportunities, they're just not going to be available to them. They're not going to be aware of them which is why you see them, um, you know, maybe uh, committing offences in, in, the, in the same store. So the same within a particular chain, uh, maybe near where they live and, and so on, or kind of like principle of, of least effort, you know. So um, I would say at the kind of place level, familiarity is going to be what's most important because they're going to be aware of those uh criminal opportunities at the asset level um there's certain characteristics that are going to make a good target um so to speak and there's things you know for example like ron clark's talks about um craved items using that acronym so you're going to look for something that is concealable, removable, available, valuable, enjoyable and or disposable. So you see as retailers all the time like these hot products that they, they kind of targeted um, more often and it all makes sense. You know, it's all, you know, we, we use rational choice theory like to, to try to understand offended decision making. If you think about it, it, it makes sense that they'll target um, those products, I suppose, in those places.
1: That's good stuff, and I appreciate it as a good tee up. Um, You know, Tom, as a recent practitioner um, and looking at protecting your department stores, or earlier on in your career, the big box specialty stores. um, You know, what were some of the things uh, perceptually you were picking up on in your people and your team uh, about? Wow, there things happen differently. There's variance or variation in the types and the severity. and the frequency of the problems that we're having at some places and others. We all know that things vary, but what was it around those locations and that location itself that you think helped drive differences in problem sets?
3: So, Reid, I I think uh, without taking in uh, any of the other extenuating circumstances like drug abuse or um, mental disorders, things like that, um, environmental challenges that I, we were seeing and some of them were no-brainers were changes in public transportation where we would have stores and in the DC metro market area and a subway would go right to the store so more access and opportunity that, we're, that we would see a lot of and then some of the inherent behavioral changes we made in store one of the things that uh, I often think about and I remember when Lucia spoke before was uh, just Getting uh, making a subtle small change in a store with signage or a placement and we sometimes would see a dramatic impact and then in other locations we would see no change doing the exact same thing so um, I think as we went through uh, I'm very curious to some of the Lucia's findings based on you know why why certain people do certain things in some locations and uh, you know I know that's a, a loaded question but how come it works sometimes, and how come it doesn't work other times?
2: Yeah, that's really um, that's really interesting, and 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 it's so good you say that because that's um, I don't know, like the whole criminology. There's like this crisis in the seventies, which is like nothing works, and you know, kind of like more recently, we're trying to get more evidence, and it's about all what works, and all these systematic reviews and meta analysis and so on, and very recently evaluation research the they kind of realized that that it's you know you you have variations this is why you get some studies that show positive results and then a different study you try to replicate those findings and then you find something else and sometimes it's seen as a kind of replication crisis in science in general but the fact is that you know quite often we're ignoring the role of what we call moderators and, you know, absolutely, the place is going to be one of those, the context, because what works in one place is not going to work in another place, um, even not just the place, but in in these um, offender interviews that we conducted, this was for a, a large research project funded by the National Institute of Justice. We interviewed 200 prolific offenders in Texas, and if I remember correctly, about 60 of them we uh, were shoplifters. We also have some commercial robbers, not as many. But one thing that came through really clearly was that, you know, you have lots of differences among these offenders. So, you know, you you can come up with some general patterns and so on. But what we saw was that some offenders responded to one thing and others responded to others. Um, so you know, they're not un- homogeneous group by any chance. And we were just looking at those offenders who had multiple convictions. So we were looking at that kind of higher end of the scale, that like kind of more prolific repeat offenders. But if you were to include like kind of the more, you know, less experienced one, more opportunistic ones, you're going to see even more variation, which is why it's so important that you have uh, an array of measures in place. Um, even speaking to them, for some of the measures they had kind of well it depends so the same place the same offender might respond in one way one day in a different way another way another day sorry so um and it could come down to you know for example the time of the day and how many people were around and you know kind of these variables are going to change in the same place for the same person, the same target and so on, but there's lots of variables involved. So that's the tricky, um, that's the, the tricky part to, to compile all this evidence because you're trying to come up with something that is evidence-based, but there's a lot of variation and you're not going to get a full understanding without looking at the role of those moderators. Also the mechanisms, how is a particular measure supposed to work? because that particular measure and that mechanism might work in one place because of the offended population that you have or because of the dynamics that you have but might not generalize to, to another situation. Um, and often we, we kind of rush to the action because we have a problem and, and you know we want to solve it. But that kind of analysis and really good understanding of the problem and matching your response to the, the nature of the problem that you have is really important. So I really, I, I really strongly believe that what you're going to be able to replicate and generalize is the process of you know kind of problem solving, understanding what's going on and coming up with a solution rather than the measure itself. You can get some general patterns, but you know it's it is easy to 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 get um, I guess discouraged by you know this variation that you see and if you worked here, why didn't it work um, somewhere else? I can tell you from the offenders that we interviewed and just to reiterate, these were kind of prolific. They were quite active um, shoplifters. The thing that came through that was fairly consistent was the human factor. So things like, you know, um, attentive associates, Um, Things like, you know, if there were items that were close to the registers or where there was an associate, then they'd be less likely to to target those. Um, When we asked about security guards, those were not seen as as maybe effective by some of the offenders. But something that they said was, well, if it's an off-duty police officer, they perceive those to, to have greater powers and they'll be more deterred by those. But again, there were some offenders that said, "No, um, you know, these things wouldn't um, deter me." So, the, so, so there was lots of, of variations. But in general, from from the data that we collected, the the the, the human factor came um, came on in general stronger than than other measures, perhaps.
1: And it's interesting, uh, Lucia. What you're touching on is, of course, as you know, dosing, and uh, we spending a lot of time with with our practitioners talking about. It's really Really, not what you do, but uh, it's how you do it. And you mentioned that example of dosing as far as uh, human, uh, you know, place protectors like a security guard uh, who's a civilian, are they armed or unarmed? What type of uniform are they standing or are they sitting? What do they, you know, what, how capable do they look? And then, of course, versus say, off duty law enforcement. Um, So, no, that's excellent. All of our interviews here with offenders is showing. It's capability. What's your intention and can you carry it out um, and their quick glance or some feedback they've gotten? That, that's great. And I appreciate it, Tom, for that That question. Um, I guess, you know, what are some other things, uh, you know, Dr. Summers, that the offenders that you all and others have talked to from your perspective, what are they noticing? Uh, uh, intentional deterrence or maybe things that they're environmental, but they weren't intentionally placed there purposely by uh that place or that business uh or residence that that the offenders seem to really pay attention to and and don't like
2: um I think i mean for example, they when we ask them just you know it's an open ended question so so before we go through. of a list of the things that we we want their answers on we we kind of ask them in general what kind of things have you noticed and you know i one that they notice all the time for example is is security cameras because they're so you know they're so prevalent they're in every store so they kind of expect them um expect them to be there um some of the ones that we ask them about they're not as um as prevalent perhaps or something that they hadn't seen as much for example you know when you have a control entry and exit in a store that's more likely to to be in some sort of you know jewelry store or something like that um but I think to some extent they you know the 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 more prevalent a measure is the the longer it's been in place you know you get that um offender adaptation, so to speak. So, you know, they're they're going to come to expect them there, they're going to be maybe um, more likely to try to circumvent those somehow. Um the newer things, you know, it kind of throws them a little bit. And, and you will have seen because you do all those, you know, experiments with the offenders when you're trying something, something new. And you know, that uncertainty of not knowing you know what it does, how to get around it, then that's that's always going to be um you know an effective deterrent, but of course it's, it's kind of um time limited. They did notice of course all the um all the tax, all the um EAS, all the anti theft tax that you get on the on the products. And they had views, you know, about some of them came up with ways in which you could get around them or you know some of them um they might have been perceived to be more effective than others so i think that general in general they they're aware of of certain things like that uh, especially if they're if they're really prevalent you know how is that going to be a deterrent so you know and again, that interacts with the type of offender you have. If there's a drug using offender, they might be more desperate or they're not fully in their capacity, then they're going to be less likely to to notice it. So anything that you can do especially for new um, measures that you're putting in place, then you know that's going to that's going to help with with that or you know, um, when you have the labels that explain how something works because you know all, all the studies that you've done that, um, explain that because they might not understand how it works. So of course, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be a deterrent. But the type of measures that we asked about, they they were probably those that are going to be more more commonplace. And in general, they they seem to be generally aware of those. And to some extent, they will expect to find them. Um, they're not universal, so we saw some evidence of well, I'm, if I'm seeing this in place, I'm just going to go to a different store, or I'm just going to go to a different area of the store, depending on what the situation was. Uh, but in general, I will say they were generally aware of, of of those more commonplace ones, and and the new was something that they had to deal with.
1: Now that's great, and and like you said, so much of our research is kind of reinforcing that see, get, fear, the notice. Noticeability, the recognizability, and, and of course, all importantly, the credibility of whatever it is. And, you know, in some of the research, as you know, we found the offender uh, somehow assigns greater or lesser credibility than is reality. They, they may see a, a radon detector, they believe that's some new high tech sensor and things like that. But by and large, our biggest challenge does seem to be we prime them. With some sign or arrow or lighting or noise, and then try and take it from there.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, you see that quite often because it's all about perceived risk, right? And perceived effort right. and perceived. So, if if you can give that perception. Um, the the kind of other side of that is that sometimes some offenders, they're going to be like, oh, maybe they're just bluffing, you know, if they see some signs about cameras or even if they see cameras, they think, well, maybe they're not really. So some of them will underestimate that risk, but others will, you know, will overestimate it. So you know, but you need to, yeah, you need to provide that information and and alert them to it. Because as you say, if you don't even notice it in the in the first place, then you know your chances of deterring them is going to be nil.
1: That's great. You know, one I had a quick question. Um, we talk a lot about, as you know, theory uh, or logic models or frameworks. Um, can you tell us a little bit about? Why and how you leverage some of our opportunity theories that we've got available um, in your work?
2: Well, the the most obvious one. These are all theories that like you say opportunity theories. They all inform um, environmental criminology, and I guess the most obvious one is um, a, you know rational choice perspective. And there's different kind of variations of of this theory. The one I'm referring to is is Cornish and Clark. Um, is the evidence? Uh, sorry, the emphasis on effort, risk, and reward. So, how hard it is to commit this particular offense, how risky is it, and how do those two weigh against the anticipated reward? And like we were saying, it all comes down to perception, right? So, an offender is going to make decisions, right, uh, based on what they are perceiving. Um, uh, the situation to be so that so they kind of um, they're going to be doing this uh, assessment it's not going to be of course like a perfect rational um, you know decision or 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 assessment because it's based on the information that is available to them um, on how they're perceiving it and so on but that framework is really helpful because it informs what we refer to as situational crime prevention so how can we modify the environment of the situation so that we're increasing that effort increasing that risk to the offender and reducing the rewards um there's actually other categories and the situational crime prevention they got um added on later on but kind of from that original framework those were the three areas where you uh you, you were being focused um now shoplifting is a really um, interesting one. It's a really interesting uh, type of crime to try to prevent with situational crime prevention, because any other, ta- any other type of crime, um, for example, if you're trying to uh, prevent a uh, vehicle crime, you know increasing the effort is going to be a very effective means because all you have to do is just lock the car. You know, you'd be surprised how many, what proportion of the auto thefts that because someone left the car unlocked. Uh, And that's easy enough because I'm the only person who needs to access the car. Now, in the context of retail and preventing shoplifting, that's a lot more complicated because you're trying to prevent a potential shoplifter from stealing the item while not stopping a potential customer from accessing that same item. So, you know, if you engage too much in effort increasing measures, then you run the risk of, um, uh, you know, reducing sales as well. So that's where you know technology and and you know can can maybe um, be really helpful in 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 trying to um, implement type of measure that is going to affect one, but not the other. But all that type of um, intervention is going to be grounded, as I'd say, on, on a rational, rational choice perspective. The other one that is also helpful is uh, a routine activity uh, theory, um, and, and that's Cohen and Felton. Um, what that theory says, it's it, it was kind of groundbreaking because up until that point, all the theories and criminology, they were all about the, the offender. The criminal and trying to explain why someone was a criminal and the next person wasn't what routine activity theory did was to expand that to the whole crime event and they're saying look for for a crime to happen it's all about opportunity three things need to come together in place and in time you need yes you need a motivated offender but you also need a suitable target and you need the absence of a capable guardian. If one of those elements is not there, then the crime is not going to happen. So that was quite helpful because you're saying, you know, if if we can't do anything about the offender, you know, like we can't rehabilitate them or prevent them from becoming criminals in the first place and so on, there are still other things that we could do. Um, and because of the space and time intersection, that theory, it's helpful because it, it, it kind of highlights that temporal um, aspect as well. So for example, in our interviews, it was quite common for the offenders to to talk about the the best time of the day or of the week to go to a store and, you know, and steal some items from the store. Um, so because if it's really busy, you know, those associates that might be attentive and kind of guarded against the shoplift, they're kind of totally overwhelmed dealing with the customers they're not going to be able to be those capable guardians that they could have been another time so um, in other cases they will say well they're tying up the busy times to for example paydays there was we conducted some interviews in the military community they were getting paid every two weeks and offenders were aware of those patterns as well so so the, the routine activity theory I'll say is really helpful in, in that, that, you know, it, it helps us um focus on that temporal aspect and also on the role of guardianship, which like you say has to be someone who you know who's capable, who's who's willing to do something about it and and who's able to do it at that particular um time and, and, and place.
1: That's great. Tom, I want to ask you for I want to ask you Tom for some comment on Uh, or some questions around crime and place, uh, something that's relevant from your experience as a practitioner that might really help our listeners out there?
3: Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things resonated with just what Lucia said. And one thing was uh, in my previous life um, when we did a lot of research and really I think actually some of it was with the LPRC of when people offended for us, um, i don 't want to use the word we 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 absolutely didn 't necessarily could identify uh, We had some theories of why, but for instance, you know the middle of the week, we had a spike in shoplifting uh, at times that it was busier and you know so we weren 't necessarily able to determine an actual cause and I think Lucia, what you said is when it was busy um, mm-hmm. it was what we identified when it was you know there were some shoplifters that we interviewed and offenders that we interviewed that. Stated, oh, well, I I like to shoplift when it's really busy because I blend in and no one sees me And then the other extreme is oh, I like to shoplift when it's not busy because the store is not staffed So I think to your point earlier um, we, we heard both both uh, Kind of you know ends of the scale mm-hmm. I, I actually had a question for you and when you're doing these offender interviews How do you um, deal with self-selection bias? So how, how do you overcome that?
2: So we have to, um, you know of course with any research you do unless you're using data that um, have been collected for other purposes so then you can you know you can access kind of all records. Um, We had to go through the IRB which is the Institutional Review Board Ethics Committee at the university and you know all offenders have to take part voluntarily. we interviewed both um community-based and incarcerated offenders. So the offenders that we interviewed were either in jail, uh and in jail rather than prison because of some limitations that we had, uh, or or then those that were on, on probation. But um yeah, they had to, of course, agree to that. We had better um a better response rate, so to speak, in jails um because <laughs> because they're there they you know they've got nothing else to do and also they are there like the ones in probation will have to make an appointment to give them time to to look at the information and make a decision as to whether they had to participate and you know many of them they're offenders they're unreliable and they kind of forget and then they didn't turn up for the appointment so uh, some of them they they agreed to begin with and then they they didn't but we had to be really careful that um no one felt coerced into being interviewed so of course that's going to affect the type of offender that you have uh, so someone who was maybe uh, you know more distressful and were ensured that we were really from a university rather than the police so that we will keep the um, information confidential they'll probably less likely to speak to us so that's going to translate into well if we had also got responses from those people then maybe we're going to have this separate group of offenders who are very risk averse who are going to maybe be more affected by these measures or they're going to be more careful um, when trying to circumvent those Um, so there's always going to be a bias and and I guess what you need to do as a researcher is try to understand which ones you're missing and how that's going to to inform, you know, how that's going to influence the the, the data that you're collecting. Um some people get concerned because they say, well, if if you're only interviewing those that have been apprehended you know, that's going to be different from someone, an offender who's never been caught, for example, right? Um, And I would say, well, you know, for the type of offender that we were interested in, the prolific offender, I would say that's still quite a successful offender because, you know, they might only be caught for like one in a hundred offences that they make. So, you know, I would say that's a more successful offender than someone who has never been caught, but they've only committed you know, a handful of offenses. So again, you know, those are their considerations in relation to to, to that as well. And, and, you know, there's going to be, like I was saying, you know, they're a really heterogeneous group. There's going to be lots of differences. Um, The type of information that we were looking at, it was almost more about the process and you know more about the how or the why so in a sense you know you will say well in general how many responded to this and how many responded to that and i would say for that type of finding you have to be more careful because like you say you know the, the finding is going to be biased but by, by the the actual sample that we use but when it comes to how how they'll get around a particular measure or why something will be more fat than others then that's kind of information that is still going to be useful, regardless of whoever it's coming from.
3: Yeah, I I I know that in, uh, when we interviewed offenders in, in store for organized retail crime, clearly very different. We don't have a review, a peer reviewer, people looking at it. But mm-hmm. I found um, a lot of offenders would that wanted to talk about it were boasting. And you could almost, mm-hmm. through an, an interview, identify that, they were embellishing quite a bit. They were proud of Mm -hmm. what they did. So I always am curious, when you're talking to a group of offenders, how you handle that self-selection. Like, I wanna talk to you, so what's the benefit? So I think that that was very helpful. And then I had one other question, which is uh, really related to research methods. And I know that you've done some research in the US and outside the US. Is the methodology the same? Does it differ when you go to the UK? Uh, in the u s or you know w- what changes if anything
2: I think the methods are kind of largely universal. what's going to change is in, in terms of for example access to um, to the data and to your participants um, so those processes are going to be um, are going to be quite different from from one country to to the next so you know for example in the u k we did some offender interviews as well uh not specific to uh retail uh crime but there were some um you know some procedures that you have to follow depending on you know where the prisons were if there was more than one region and and so on uh you also have an ethics committee at the university and those rules are kind of very um they're kind of similar the kind of uh, principles that they'll, they'll they'll go with but in terms of Research methods. Um, I will say that they're very, they very, very similar in terms of the, the the techniques that you will use. You know, when you're interviewing or when you're analyzing data and, and so on. Is the is the data access that that will be different? Um, what changes, I think, is how likely it is that you're going to get, for example, practitioners. And academics working together, and how likely that is. So I can tell you, for example, in Spain, where I'm from uh, originally, you know, research is not um, given the the resources that um, that you have here or or in the UK. It's not going to be as likely to to see that type of collaboration. Whereas, for example, in the UK, and and you know, they're trying to do a little bit of work. Uh, that way, for example, Jill Dando Institute, where I used to work at, at UCL, they they do some work more kind of pragmatic with with retailers. Um, I'm not aware of anything like LPRC in the UK or anywhere else in Europe. And um and that's something that maybe we can, <laughs> you guys can set up a satellite <laughs> with some university there because it's, it's really helpful to, to have that framework that you have where you're all working together because academics don't know what questions to ask that are going to be relevant. You know, uh, they don't have access to the data. You know, maybe practitioners can benefit from, you know, all the knowledge that academics have. And it's just, you know, when, you, when you're doing that work together is when you're really going to come up with something that's going to be useful, that is going to be, you know, welcome
1: back to that and so on. So, And, and by the way, uh, Lucia, we had a, a detective chief inspector over here from the med and um, she is heading up or now, I guess her colleague, the uh, national business crime center. That's uh, I guess a UK wide um, entity um, through the home office. And I guess they, they are expressing strong interest in what you suggested. So you know, stay tuned. We'll see. Um, and we are, uh working with our Australian and new zealand colleagues as we speak and of course quite a bit in canada um so so i I wanted to ask you um you know what are you know you've you've been here you've worked with us a little bit at the lprc and uh with some of the practitioners and, and the solution partners out there uh in addition to all your extensive research and experience you know what Is there anything that comes to mind or some things that come to mind? I know before the podcast, uh, we talked a little bit and you mentioned, of course, uh, a phenomenon that we are very interested in and using uh, for anti-violence like robbery, uh, particularly in the Baltimore area as we do research uh, on repeats and so forth. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and help the practitioner understand some of those phenomena?
2: So the... um, uh repeat uh victimization and and repeat offending um it, it it's it all relates to the idea of familiarity to the offender and how offender are uh, how offenders are going to be targeting their um you know their the the assets or the places that they're going to be um uh, victimizing and and the idea is that um you have that concentration. It's kind of this Pareto law, it's like 80 and 20. So, you know, you've got 20% of the offenders that are committing 80% of the crime. 20% of the stores or the assets are uh, are the ones that are stolen 80% of the time and so on. And if you try to predict victimization, prior victimization is going to be the most reliable uh, uh, predictor. So you can have the same store being Victimized again for for a number of reasons because, like I was saying, one the offender is familiar with this, so they know what to expect, they know how to get around different measures and so on. Um, or it could be because you know they uh, there's something that they didn't get around to do while well, they were there, they became aware of other opportunities and so on, and then they're they're, they're coming back to 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 finish the job, so to speak. But you also get near repeats. Uh, which is they're not targeting exactly the same uh, place or the same item, but they're targeting an item or a place that is nearby. And again, this is because of this familiarity. While victimizing the first target, they gain familiarity with nearby ones. Sometimes you get a. Uh, a spatial temporal clusters so you get this near repeat phenomenon where you have a number of uh, crimes happening nearby and close together as in a you know kind of like a cluster or like kind of spurt of, of activity um, sometimes they're going to be more spread out in time and the other one that um, we observe in crime in general but it's, it's very um, relevant to retail crime is virtual repeats and that's when you're going to see a particular place targeted, not because it's nearby, not because it's been targeted before, but because it's very similar to the one that was originally victimized, even if it's further away. So if you have a chain and they have a similar layout, uh, they have the same procedures and so on, you know, an offender might be more likely to choose that, even if they've never been to that particular store, just because they've, you know, kind of, um, they've been active in stores from from the same chain, so so that's going to be something that, um, or because they offer a particular item, you know, sometimes if if some offenders they were um, they were selling an item on order, and then they knew that that particular designer, it was only stocked by this retailer and that retailer. It's like, well, they're they're limited; they have to um, engage in that virtual repeat. But having similar layouts, having similar procedures, and so on, is going to be something that's going to help them because it's going to give them that virtual familiarity, so to speak.
1: No, it's excellent. And as you know, we're trying to always understand why and why not, or why here and not there. And um, you know, Doctor Weisberg talks about uh, not just who done but where done it's. Uh, and of course, we're mostly interested in why, um, and where, and when. So, um, good advice. So what I'd like to do is uh, anything else, uh, Lucia, from your end that we need to know, or uh, most importantly, our listeners, uh, is they are working in law enforcement, they're working in loss venture or asset protection, they're trying to protect a place or multiple places. Um, any other relevant research or theory out there that they might harness um, to their best use?
2: I will say in terms of... Um of theories, those ones are going to be, uh, like we said, routine activity theory and, and and rational choice. They're going to be the, um, the most helpful frameworks. Um, in terms of findings, um, a couple of things that um, haven't come up and that uh, I thought were interesting. Quite a few of the offenders in our study mentioned about the same type of store from the same chain but whether it was in one neighborhood or another and they specifically talked about avoiding for example a a store that was in a a, in a you know kind of more high crime area because they said they have all these measures in place so they said it was harder to, to to get away with it or to actually um you know still whatever they were after because of all these different measures in place so they might target uh one that wasn't too far away but where the security wasn't as high because the neighborhood perhaps wasn't as high a crime as that one not everyone is going to be doing that remember that the offenders that we we talked about they're kind of like more you know more experienced so to speak that was the specialist um type of offense and and so on um the other one, and I will say actually not two more, the other one is, you know, when you put in something into place, you know, maybe try to anticipate displacement. Um, that was the main topic of our uh, big research project. And it's about, well, when they're responding to these measures, these crime prevention measures, it's not a matter of do I commit the crime, yes or no? It's a matter of fact, like, okay, if I'm not offending in this particular situation context, you know, what are my alternative choices? Um, and you see quite often that they're going to be targeting maybe a different asset within the store, or they're going to go to another store that might be a different chain or the same chain. They might come back later. There will be a temporal displacement. We're talking about temporal patterns. Or they might adapt what they're doing, like the tactical displacement to get around those. And I think with the technology, we think more about, um, you know, this tactical displacement, but there's the other types of displacement that might be relevant in in some um, circumstances that, you know, it's worth going through that checklist and, and trying to, to think about those. And, you know, the last thing is just like, you know, always prevention is is better than than cure so you know we all know as you know retailers is like you know you can apprehend shoplifters but that's so time consuming because then you're waiting for the police to arrive you have to collect the data you I mean we've seen some success with trespass orders uh even some of the offenders mentioned those that um those seem to affect them because then as soon as they step um you know the step foot in the store then they were automatically they could do something with them they didn't have to catch them in the act but in general you know if you can stop something from happening it's is going to be much more effective than having to deal with it or 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 catching them
1: fantastic and um i guess maybe if you could carve out one minute or you know to discuss the idea uh we are looking at with sort of risk terrain modeling uh, with the, Rus- the Rutgers crew, um, we know that the closer a, a mass transit stop or a convenience store or a you know a cash out spot and things like that might drive more risk to that, to your location for certain reasons. Uh, I know that you've looked at street networks, um, where they are, the type of road networks uh, near a place and how that might actually also drive risk to a given location. Can you take a minute or two to, to kind of, Illuminate that, if you would, Lucia.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So accessibility is going to be really important because, you know, again, uh, minimal effort—they have to get in and they have to get out. Um, but also, accessibility is going to inform their the the mobility on days when they're not shoplifting, or times when they're not shoplifting. So again, you know, you're just going to have that indirect effect through familiarity. So anything that is going to be near. Uh, you know, main nodes of activity, and you know, transport nodes. They're going to be important, more important in in, in some areas than others. If if uh, offenders are relying on tr- public transport, that they're, they're going to be one, you know, one type of activity now that is always going to um, to give you that increased risk. So, absolutely, yes.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. I appreciate that. Um, And Lucia, um, I really want to thank you. And on behalf of uh, Tom Ian and uh, our listeners and all of the LPRC and of course, our University of Florida research team here in Gainesville, we want to thank you for your time and please keep up the good work. And we look forward to working with you a lot more um, and sitting down with you on some of the latest research that we've got underway and that you've got underway. So thank you very much, Lucia.
2: No, thank you for including me and and um, yeah just thank you for all the great work that you're doing and I'm a great supporter of you guys so yeah anything any need thank you again for for having me here
1: high praise indeed thank you and thanks everybody for listening to crime science
0: podcast have a good one